This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing an important article on some of the possible negative effects of tapering patients off of high-dose opioids. How are you doing, Sonia? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? Good, good. What's been new uh, this week in addiction medicine? Well, I just wanted to really encourage all of our listeners to get their DEAX waivers to prescribe buprenorphine. As you might know, the DEA has dropped all training requirements, and you can fill out a simple online form, get your waiver to treat up to 30 patients with buprenorphine. One of my partners did it as a test case. It took him five minutes to fill out the form, but then he had to wait almost two months for the waiver to be approved for them to get back to him. And my entire practice group did it this morning. We all just filled out the form. Everybody submitted it. And eventually they'll all have their DEAX waivers. They're not committing to prescribe the medication, but at least they're ready if they have a patient who they need to treat emergently or there's someone being discharged from the hospital who needs a prescription. And I just want to encourage all primary care doctors out there to fill out this form. Do it now. And then when a crisis situation comes up with one of your patients, at least you'll have the ability to prescribe buprenorphine. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the application and also a link to a free one hour mini course on how to prescribe buprenorphine and a six page quick start guide. So if you're interested in getting into this area, you can take a look at these simple resources and What I encourage people is to just start slow, start with one or two patients. Maybe you have some patients in your practice who have to go outside your practice for their buprenorphine. You could kind of bring them back in to your primary care practice. You could provide their buprenorphine along with other services. So that's what I wanted to share with our listeners this week. That's awesome, Sonia. I think that's a great resource. And I do encourage everyone to do the same thing. Like one thing I think that I was, uh, I think I've talked about on previous episode is I was really kind of appalled one time at a CME event where an older doctor told me that basically she had no comfort uh, in prescribing SSRIs for depression. She said that it was scary to her and that she felt that, you know, she could do a lot of harm to a patient. And uh, she sent everyone to psychiatry for SSRIs. And part of me thought that this is kind of like standard of care now. I think most kind of listeners that are listening to this right now probably have no issue with prescribing such medications And I think buprenorphine is relatively similar. I think it's a very benign medication. I think once you prescribe it a couple of times, I think you'll feel a high comfort level with it. And I do really encourage everyone to kind of sign up for the waiver and maybe take an online course for an hour or two. But there's not a bunch of magic here, and I don't think it requires much finesse. I think it's a relatively safe medication, very associated with uh, decreasing the risk of hurting your patients and keeping them alive longer. And you will save lives with this. So I think it's a great idea to to kind of get online and and fill out this waiver while there's no uh, additional CME required for this. Well, and I think like a lot in primary care, we can deal with the simpler cases. And so if you have a chronic stable patient who you could give buprenorphine to and save them extra trips to some sort of cash only addiction doctor, you might as well do that. And then the more complex patients, you could refer or triage to doctors who have more experience or to actual addiction clinics. So That's the other thing. I think primary care doctors are afraid of having to set up a whole addiction clinic or somehow get used to the infrastructure required to treat a lot of patients. But you don't have to do that right off the bat. You can just treat two or three patients who you already know and do them a big favor and do a lot of good in the meantime. And then if you get comfortable in the future, you can expand it and provide more addiction services out of your office. So 
yeah, I was just really happy that my group decided to do this. And I hope that other people will follow suit. Yeah. And not to belabor the point, but I do feel like that, you know, I think most people probably listen to this podcast often know that uh, this is probably one of the best parts of being a primary care doctor. These patients are very appreciative. They're very vulnerable. They need help and you can be a, a real ally to them. So especially this group has a lot going on. They they probably haven't had many allies in their life. So become a, a wavered physician, save some lives, get out there. I love it. Yeah, it's it's great. <laughs> Tell us about this really cool article. And I love this article, by the way. I feel like it's uh, it's been presented in many journal clubs. I've heard it from a couple of different sources. Definitely kind of big news in addiction medicine. So tell us about it, Sonia. All right. So we're talking about an article titled Association of Dose Tapering with Overdose and Mental Health Crisis Among Patients Prescribed Long-Term Opioids. It was published in JAMA of a year ago now, August 2021. So the background, as you might remember, in 2016, the CDC released prescribing guidelines in response to the opioid overdose epidemic. They recommended a maximum safe dose of 90 morphine milliequivalents daily with dose tapering for those for whom harm outweighed the benefits. This contributed to a significant reduction in opioid prescriptions to levels that were similar to 2006 prior to the large rise in opioid prescribing, mostly due to OxyContin. However, the opioid overdose deaths continued to increase and most recently topped 100,000 annually. So again, as a medical community, we've massively decreased our prescribing of opioids, but it has not actually reduced opioid overdose deaths. I mean, I guess you could argue that overdose deaths would be even higher if we were still giving out opioids like candy. But the fact is overdose deaths have continued despite our massive reduction in opioid prescribing. Another aspect of opioid prescribing is what to do with patients who've been maintained on high-dose long-term opioid therapy. When these guidelines came out, many of these patients were faced with dose reductions. Their physicians felt that they basically would run afoul of these guidelines, and many health systems put these guidelines as regulations or rules for their providers, and the providers felt they had no choice but to taper their patients to get them under 90 morphine mill equivalents a day. Some thought was given to the harm that would be caused to these patients, but it was considered negligible compared to the possible benefits of reducing opioid overdose deaths. The HHS and the CDC at the time have both published guidelines for opioid dose reduction and how to do tapers safely, and they cautioned about the hazards of dose reduction and the need to monitor patients closely during that time. However, those cautions were lost in the rush to reduce chronic opioid prescribing overall. There also have been some smaller observational studies that looked at harms of opioid reduction or discontinuation, but they focused on either limited populations or they studied only what happened with complete discontinuation, you know, like when a patient gets completely cut off, not what happens after a more controlled taper. So that's the background. And let's stop for a minute and talk about tapering. What has been your experience tapering patients off long-term high-dose opioids? Have you seen good outcomes, bad outcomes? How's it been for you and your patients? I guess, like many primary care physicians, it's been relatively mixed, right? I think that, um, I guess the question always comes down to, like, what are you tapering for? We treat patients. We don't treat numbers. Like, you know, we never do this with anything else. So anything else in medicine, we don't look at a lab value and say, we're going to treat you based upon just the lab value. We look at a clinical status. So patients that are at higher morphine equivalents because... 
of a weaker nebulous uh, indication and don't benefit from it or they have harm from it. I feel like I've had relatively good outcomes of tapering them down. I think there, there is a subgroup of patients that have been on uh, high dose opioids that really, they didn't really have a harm from that, at least when I kind of encountered them, or at least not that was known to me. And I think kind of tapering just for a number has always been difficult for that group. Not that they've done bad on that either. I think most people tell you they actually feel somewhat better when they're on a lower dose of opioids. And the question is like people on several hundred morphine equivalents, is that very effective even at that dose? That's very debatable with opioid-induced hyperanalgesia syndrome. But um, I, I think that they've done relatively well for the most part. I think the biggest kind of shock I've had as a primary care doc, and I, I will tell you when I kind of moved into the community I currently work in, there wasn't much kind of regulation that people are not used to things like pill counts, random urine drug screens. And I think that I've had many people where there was uh, clear misuse going on, and that group has been very difficult to deal with. But I think in terms of just kind of the other group, it's it's been relatively straightforward. How about you, Sonia? Yeah, I mean, I've worked with a bunch of patients who've been on chronic high-dose opioids. A lot of them were on chronic high-dose opioids that I myself put them on before I knew better. And then I had to sort of stay with them as we tapered off those medications. In general, my patients are either the same or better after taper. And of course, it's not a totally random sample because patients who are not interested in tapering often will leave the practice altogether. So I have some patients who I offered taper to and they went and found other doctors who did not offer that. I've had a few patients who were kind of, as we would say, cut off and transitioned from prescribed opioids to to using illicit opioids, you know, buying fentanyl, heroin on the street, but they weren't really stable. They were already using the prescribed opioids in an unsafe manner with escalating doses, lost prescriptions, you know, not a lot of benefit a lot of drama. And so I wasn't surprised. I mean, I was, I was sad, but I wasn't surprised that they ended up transitioning to illicit opiates. And of course, almost everybody in my buprenorphine clinic tells me they started on prescribed opioids and they curse the name of the doctor who got them on the high dose because inevitably something went wrong. They lost access to those drugs and they turned to street drugs. And so should they not have been cut off or not been tapered so that they never turn to illicit opioids? I'm not sure. I'm not sure maintaining patients on high-dose prescribed opioids is a great way to prevent them from turning to addiction. You know, but I was just talking with a patient about this this morning. The patient was saying, well, it seems sort of silly that I can't get the oxycodone anymore, which actually helped with the pain, but I can get buprenorphine. So you let me be addicted to buprenorphine, but you won't let me be addicted to oxycodone. What's the difference here? And this is a patient I had prescribed oxycodone to in the past. And now he, you know, he transitioned to illicit drugs and now has to be on buprenorphine. And I said, you know, the difference is that the oxycodone wasn't stable. You know, there were escalating doses and it wasn't necessarily controlling the pain and you were stable for a while, but then you stopped being stable on it. So the buprenorphine won't have quite that same effect. So yeah, I mean, but overall, my experience has been positive. Most patients have been very happy to taper off their opioids and have felt better without them. And they've been particularly happy when they are not dependent on the medical system anymore for medication. When they can miss a dose, they can go on vacation, they don't have to call six times and be anxious that their prescription is going to run out in two days and no one's getting back to them with a refill. 
you know, it just gives them a lot more freedom if they're not dependent on high-dose opioids. You know, it is interesting. Um, in my current role, I'm not going to give too much away, but I, I do sometimes have to meet with kind of physicians about, you know, issues with controlled substances. And it's often interesting that people often, like we love our patients, right? We don't want to disappoint them. We don't want, we don't want to go home at the end of the day feeling that we're not on the same side of them. I think the biggest problem with opioids for many of us is that at times we're kind of like antagonistic or we're looking at the situation from alternative sides and you don't feel like you're concordant with the patient in terms of how you're viewing this. However, like when there are like red flags, like, you know, a patient's misusing medication, they're out of their oxycodone two weeks into a 30 day prescription. You know, oftentimes a lot of docs like that are kind of propagating this, they, they feel like they're still helping them by kind of engaging in the early refill. But I think it's interesting that actually the patients, when there's really truly a problem there, they don't look back favorably on that doctor. And I think that, you know, anyone listening to this podcast should know this, that if there really is issues with opioids, you know, if you're kind of like trying to turn the other way or kind of enabling, by the time the patient does get help, they're not going to feel that, you know, you were looking out for them. They're going to, they're going to realize you weren't helping them. And I think that that's hard for us all to kind of, to deal with, right? It is hard, but the longer you spend in practice, and this has been my experience, I now have multiple patients who I used to prescribe opioids to I told them that I think it's no longer safe. Things are getting out of hand. I'm not going to prescribe anymore. I offer a taper or buprenorphine or transition to safer medications. And a bunch of them have left my pain management practice. They've gone and found some other doctor to prescribe opioids, but they stayed my patients. They still like me as their doctor. So they didn't find it a bad thing that I said I wasn't going to prescribe their opioids anymore. And a lot of them said they understood. They just didn't feel they could go without them. And then I've watched some of them do poorly and transition to illicit opiates. I've watched others be totally stable in pain management situations, you know, with other doctors. So, yeah, I have not found that telling patients I think it's unsafe has driven them away. Can I ask you one question? And, and you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Do you, have you ever tapered someone just off of a number, though? I mean, we've all done things when we were like younger in practice. I'll answer, I'll answer afterwards. But do you feel like when you ever have a new patient... Has someone ever been on an incredibly high dose and you go, we're going to taper you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've tapered all of my patients down to below 90 morphine mill equivalents a day, including one who was stable and pretty satisfied with where they were. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, I just don't feel comfortable with this dose. And part of my hesitation was that we're a group practice. And I said to him, you're vulnerable if something happens to me, no one is going to take over this prescribing. Do you ever regret that at all? No, no. I've had a few patients who I pushed them to try getting off their opioids or benzodiazepines and it went very, very poorly. But I left them with the out because I kind of suspected it might that I would restart them. Okay. And so I regret putting the patient through, you know, three or six months of real difficulty. But I don't necessarily regret trying because most patients, I think, are able to taper off these medications without too much difficulty. Yeah, kind of like putting myself out there. I feel like at times I felt like um, I've done this before. People in very high doses, I've, I've had patients come to me on, on 1,400, 1,500 morphine equivalents and we do a taper. And I feel like at some point during the taper, I feel like maybe I did them a disservice. But, you know, looking at it now kind of a couple of years back. Actually, I feel like, you know, that was the right call. It just didn't feel like it in the moment, you know? Yeah. I mean, I 
it's hard to know because you never know what would have happened if you hadn't made the choices you did. And as I said, my experience with addiction has made me more willing to taper because so many patients come in cursing the name of the doctor who let them stay on opioids for however many years for whatever injury, you know, is long healed. So I don't want to be that doctor. This is true. Well, let's get started talking about our article. Perfect. All right. So the clinical question, the goal of this study was to see for patients on stable long-term high-dose opioids, if there was an association between opioid dose tapering and overdose and mental health crises. So that's the simple question. Is there an association between tapering opioids and having an overdose or a mental health crisis? So who was in this study? It included patients who were prescribed high-dose stable opioids, meaning a mean daily dose of greater than 50 morphine milliequivalents and no more than 10% variation over the course of a year in that dose. They had to be on opioids at least 12 months and they had to be adults. The data came from something called the Optum Labs Data Warehouse, which is a huge database of longitudinal health information from Medicare and some commercial insurers. It has about 60 million patients in the database and 121,847 of those were prescribed continuous high-dose opioids, which was about 0.2% of the total population during the study time. And the study was, they looked at patients between 2007 and 2019. So it covered the time of fentanyl, but it did not include the time of COVID. They excluded patients who had cancer, who were on palliative care or hospice, who had a buprenorphine prescription, who died or who increased their opioid dose to greater than 15% above baseline. So patients who were rapidly escalating their opioid dose or perhaps having acceleration of some underlying pain process. The demographics 54% were women, the mean age was 58, 40% were commercially insured, and 28% were co-prescribed a benzodiazepine, high in my opinion, and 54% had baseline depression or anxiety. So again, these are not 20-year-old men who maybe are scamming their doctors. These are mostly women in their late 50s, many with commercial insurance, many with depression and anxiety, and 28% co-prescribed a benzo. So the exposure, the harm that was looked at was dose tapering. So the opioid tapering in this study was defined as a 15% relative reduction in mean daily dose over a two-month period. So they looked at a bunch of overlapping 60-day windows and saw if your opioid dose was reduced during any of those 60-day windows. And if it was reduced by more than 15%, that was considered a taper period. They also looked at dose reduction velocity, which was defined as the fastest rate of monthly dose reduction. They compared it to patients who were on the opioids but didn't have a taper. And the outcomes they looked at were ED or hospital encounters for drug overdose, for withdrawal, for depression, for anxiety, suicide attempts, all within 12 months of these taper periods. Secondary outcomes were whether there were risks associated with a faster dose reduction. So if they reduce the dose faster, did that lead to an increase in these ED visits for opioid overdose or mental health crisis? So John, do you think they defined the clinical question well? Yeah, I think that basically is kind of the, the true question is like, you know, who is actually having kind of an adverse effect? I do think that the, you know, this kind of just looks at kind of numbers of patients that were actually kind of reduced. It really didn't kind of look into the why, but I do think that, you know, it's a good start, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge database. And so you gain something by having such a large sample, but you lose it by having it be this very 
blunt instrument that is coding data. So let's talk about whether this is a valid trial. It was a retrospective cohort study, not a randomized controlled trial. So again, you cannot necessarily determine cause and effect from this study. The sample size was large, 113,618 patients, and 37,000 of those patients had baseline periods followed by a taper, so about 18%. 166,000 baseline periods were not followed by a taper. So 18% of the time periods were after a taper. So the majority of patients in this study were not tapered. They just stayed on their opioids as prescribed. They use coding data, which is notoriously unreliable, but sometimes is all we have. Another thing I want to bring up, because this is not a randomized controlled trial, the group that got tapered and the group that didn't were not similar at the start of the trial. The group who got tapered had higher rates of benzodiazepine code prescription, higher rates of previous overdose, higher rates of any kind of substance use disorder, higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety. Now, none of those differences were extremely large, but when you add them all up together, you can see how patients with previous overdoses, history of substance use disorder, history of mental health diagnoses, how those patients would be more likely to be compelled to taper their medication, how their doctors would be less willing to prescribe them, because those are the patients who are higher risk for adverse outcomes from substance use disorder and from opioid overdose. Yeah, definitely. Another big difference between the two groups was that patients on higher dose opioids were tapered more. So patients who are on greater than 300 morphine milliequivalents a day, especially, tended to get tapered, whereas those who are on much lower doses did not. So again, the two groups were not similar at baseline. A few other things about validity. There were a lot of covariates. They really tried to capture patients who would be more likely to have an adverse outcome and control for that. So they looked at age, sex, education, rurality, like how rural was your area, your insurance status, your baseline opioid dose, whether you got a benzo, the number of overdoses you've had, your baseline depression, anxiety, your history of substance-related disorders. They tried to control for all that stuff. But I'm just not sure they were able to truly control for all of those factors. Uh, There were a lot of comparisons, which does increase the risk of type 1 error, which, again, means finding a difference between the taper and the non-taper group when actually there is none. They did try to account for some of that by conducting several sensitivity analyses, and they also constructed what they would call a propensity score to try and account for significant co-founding between the adverse outcome and the baseline characteristics to sort out what was from the opioid taper itself, and what was just from the baseline characteristics of the patient. You know, for example, you would expect that patients who have higher incidence of depression and anxiety would have more ED visits for depression and anxiety, whether or not they were tapered off their high-dose opioids. So they tried to account for that, but I'm not sure they were able to fully separate out all the effects. The study did not include uninsured patients who might be at higher risk of adverse outcomes, I thought the outcomes were pretty good. Overdose and mental health crisis, they're clinically relevant, clinically significant, but they didn't include other adverse outcomes of opioid tapering, most importantly, chronic pain. So there was nothing about the subjective experience of the patients undergoing dose tapering. And I don't think you could have gotten that from this database, but of course, that's what my patients are most interested in. Did you have more pain when you tapered off your opioids? And finally, I don't think funding caused bias. It was funded by the University of California. And they had no role in the study other than just funding it. So what do you think, John? Do you think this was a valid trial? Yeah, I think so for the most part. I mean, I think it kind of tried to covariate analysis, all these kind of other issues that do kind of play into the fact when someone is kind of tapering off of their opioids or making a dose transition, 
it's a really complicated subject. So I think it's, it's, they did the best job they could, at least in my opinion. How about you? What do you think, Sonia? Yeah, I mean, I think it was valid. I think if you're going to use insurance data, they did a good job. I liked their definition of dose tapering, and I appreciated that they included relatively small dose reductions, which mirrors in clinical practice how we taper patients off. So I think it was good enough. It was good enough. So let's talk about the results. So I'm going to summarize. The patients who tapered had more overdoses, more mental health crises, more depression, more anxiety, more suicide attempts than those who didn't taper. So that's not good. To give specific numbers, just to get a sense of the magnitude of these problems, in the post-tapering periods per 100-person years, there were 9.3 overdoses in the tapering group and 5.5 overdoses in the non-tapering group. There were 7.6 mental health crises per 100 patient years in the tapering group and 3.3 mental health crises per 100 patient years in the non-tapered group. So overall, overdoses and mental health crises were relatively rare. And the other adverse outcomes, including suicide, were very rare. There was less than one per 100 patient years of suicide in both, in both groups, although the tapering group did have a higher rate of suicide attempts. They also found that increasing the dose reduction velocity was associated with an increased risk of overdose and mental health crisis. So again, to summarize, in the year after tapering, patients experienced more overdoses, more mental health crises, and that risk was even greater for those who tapered more quickly off their medication. So what do you think? I mean, I think that a lot of the information presented here, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm sure you probably feel relatively similar. I think that the the problem that I struggle with here is, you know, the, the biggest question here is is not the taper. I think there's a lot going on with a taper, right? I think all of us that do this on a day-to-day basis, kind of understanding like the why behind the taper, I think it really kind of drives things. If you're tapering because the patient is misusing the medication, I think that those kind of can go uh, hand in hand, or if there's polysubstance use, or there's another confounder there. I don't know. I mean, I think you look at this one of two ways. You look at it as either that you don't uh, taper because it might uh, hurt the patient. But on the, on the flip side, I think there's just not a lot of information here to tell you specifically kind of what what kind of led to this and, and really what is the causal effect. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? I think this is a really hard one to look at. I think that 20 people look at this and look at this 20 different ways. Right. I mean, I think the risks of tapering are real. I think if you try to taper patients off the long-term opioids you've maintained them on, there is a risk that they'll transition to illicit opiates and overdose. Apparently, there's also a risk if you don't taper them. It's just higher if you do taper them. And there's a risk that they'll have a mental health crisis. As we see in our patients who are trying to get off illicit opiates, they often are at risk for overdose. They have significant depression and anxiety as they go through that withdrawal process and they work to reestablish a new kind of psychopharmacologic baseline without all of the illicit drugs. So I'm not surprised. It didn't convince me that I shouldn't take for patients off long-term high-dose opiates because the risks of being on those medications are also well-known. You know, they didn't look at beyond the one year, but, you know, transitioning to illicit opiates in the future is definitely a risk. There's significant side effects. There's risk of diversion. There's risk to the community. You know, if you live in a household where someone has a prescription for opioids, you're more likely to experience an overdose, even if you're not the one who has that prescription. So there's a lot of risk to high-dose opioids. And they didn't really address that in this study beyond the overdoses in that one year after tapering. But it definitely made me think I should be careful with my tapers. So 
that brings me to the question of whether the results will help me in patient care. So I thought my patients were similar to those in this study, although at this point I have no more patients on greater than 90 morphine mill equivalents a day. I do have a few on chronic high dose opioids. My patients have been exposed to dose tapering, so I've seen this situation in action. The harms of tapering are ones that my patients fear. You know, the suicide attempts, the depression, the anxiety, and the transition to illicit opiates. I have seen those happen to patients. The benefits from tapering are protection against adverse outcomes from high-dose opioids, which are significant. So there are benefits to taper. This study didn't address another harm of taper, though, which is increased pain, because there's a reason the patients were on the opioids in the first place. So did they have increased pain after they tapered? In my experience with my patients, I do not see increased pain with opioid tapers. I see basically the pain is the same because with tolerance, the opioids become ineffective. So most patients are basically the same pre and post taper. Some are a little better. I don't have anyone whose pain has been significantly worse after either tapering or transitioning from prescribed opiates to buprenorphine. It's interesting you say that because I feel like I've never heard someone tell me their pain got worse after tapering opioids. I've heard that their pain is either the same, but I've had a large percentage of patients tell me that their pain is actually better. And, you know, like the the concept of like opioid hyperalgesia syndrome, it, it, it really is something that's kind of like a lot of people haven't heard of, but it is, it's very real. And we all see this is the person that kind of sits wrong or you do the shoulder exam, just barely touch them and they're in pain and they're on opioids. I mean, it's very it's very difficult and it's hard to get people to buy into that as a possible harm. But it's very real. And I, and I do agree with you. I think that I've never had someone that's like, you know, I'm much worse off. I think it's the same or, you know, slightly better. Yeah. I mean, I've had some patients who do wish that they could go back on their opioids And I sort of reminded them, well, you were telling me you had excruciating, unbearable pain and you were taking oxycodone 20 milligrams three times a day. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know. So I think people, their brain might remember the opioids fondly. But if I look back in my notes and I look at how they described how they were feeling when they were taking the opioids, often it was not good. They weren't doing very well. So In conclusion, I feel this study shows a correlation between opioid dose tapering and increased rates of overdose and mental health crisis. So I will be very careful when tapering patients off high-dose opioids to monitor them for transition to illicit opioids and declining mental health. I will also continue to avoid starting my patients on chronic high-dose opioids due to the possibility of adverse outcomes related to almost inevitable future tapering. You know, and this article has been talked about a lot, like we said, because of some of these concerns and continuing opioid overdose crisis, the CDC is updating their guidelines and they're considering removing any specific reference to a maximum safe dose of opioids. A lot of people made the point that this number of 90 morphine mill equivalents, although it is based on studies showing that people have more adverse outcomes above that level, is not a very strong, not very strongly proven to be a problem. And also chronic long-term opioid patients are different from patients who are getting opioids de novo. And a lot of people feel that this arbitrary cutoff of 90 has done a lot of harm because a lot of health systems and states and medical societies put 90 as the cutoff for appropriate treatment. And most physicians felt pressure to get their patients below that number 90, no matter how the patient was doing clinically. So the CDC is considering eliminating that specific number as a maximum safe dose of opioids from the update of their guidelines. We'll have to see when it comes out. Yeah, I know this is definitely like a 
like the buzz right now about eliminating the number because it's kind of stigmatizing and people feel the need to be under a certain number. I mean, the only thing I'd say kind of from a flip side is every other drug we have has a maximum dose, right? You go to do your pharmacopoeia, there's a maximum dose. And certainly you can prescribe beyond it, but it's not recommended. I, I don't know. I feel like that maybe 90 is not the right number, but certainly I think some guidance as to what's acceptable. I think it, it must have been very different back in like, you know, 15, 20 years ago when there was no maximum number and you looked like a great doctor just increasing these doses every time a patient come in to see you. I don't know. What do you think about the, the number, Sonia? I agree with you. I think I think it is good to set a max number, especially for patients that you're starting the medicine on fresh. And I think the development of tolerance to opioids definitely gives them a little bit of a different pharmacology than, say, I don't know, metformin or whatever, amoxicillin. I don't think it's wrong to set a number, but I think these patients who've been maintained on chronic high-dose opioids, and I would also include patients who've been maintained on chronic benzodiazepines, is a little bit of a different story. You know, it's an iatrogenic injury. As a medical community, we put them in the position to be dependent on these medications in a very real way. And we have to take responsibility for helping get them off it. You know, I try to tell patients, it's not your fault. This is just how these medicines respond. And your doctor should not have let you take whatever for 14 years. It was an irresponsible decision. And I'm really sorry. And I know that they were just trying to help you out. But here's where we are. And the medical community has done this to you. This is not your fault. So I really try to to tell patients that. And I do feel it. I, it really is true. You know, we've harmed patients. Yeah. And then we have to get them out of the situation and we kind of hurt them again. So I feel bad for patients who are in this situation. It's not their fault. And um, I feel as a community, we should have known better. Yeah. I mean, questions like how much you believe from pharmaceutical companies at this point, I feel like, you know, take everything with a grain of salt if it seems too good probably is too good. Agreed. And no one wins with this. As a, as a primary care doc, I, and I have a, a relatively large panel. I take new patients every week. This is a real grind for the rest of us kind of like taking new patients. You know, this is a very common scenario. It's, it's really hard. At the end of the day, it's a long conversation. Often it gets you behind in the office and you don't feel warm and fuzzy afterwards, right? It's a it's it's basically a point where like you're kind of discordant with the patient. You guys are not seeing the situation the same side. And, you know, that's not what you want to be like. We, we like helping people and we like being on their side and we like being their advocate. And this is a very unfortunate situation where at times you're you're, you're kind of discordant and it's it stinks. It feels awful. I agree. You know, you don't want to be fighting with your patients, but I actually have had a lot of people who, you know, I feel like I've had enough experience with opioid tapering. I can tell them. I say, hey, I can get you off these and you're not going to go through withdrawal and you'll feel better at the end. And they're thrilled because they've tried to get off them in the past and have felt really terrible. And actually, I've had a lot of patients very happy that I've told them I can get you off this and your pain will be the same. And you'll feel at the end, you'll have less constipation and maybe feel more awake. And we'll do this together and it'll work out. It'll actually work out pretty well. And I've had patients be very happy with that discussion. You're a better doc than me. So. Thanks, Sonia. It's hard either way. But yeah, I, I think some people are open to the idea. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about this article included in a future episode, you can email us at 
addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at addictionmedjc. If you want to hear your comments in your own voice on the air, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employer or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.